There we go. Hi, everybody. It's Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Happy 2020. Hopefully, uh, you had a good New Year's. Over the holiday, though, it was pretty clear that the forces that are allied against vaping were not prepared to cease hostilities and to cease fire, as it were. And what they did do in a series of surprise meetings pushed President Trump along the way to where his uh, flavor ban, the national flavor ban that we all thought at least was dormant in November, turned into a fait accompli. Uh, and this happened uh, right over the holidays. And a lot of you did see uh, the president's announcement of that on New Year's Eve. Now, at the heart of it all uh, is Paul Blair. Mr. Blair, thank you very much for uh, joining us on RegWatch. Thanks for having me. Well, and thank you for uh, putting up with our technology technology challenges here. It is uh, a brand new studio space that we've got. Um, I wish that I could show you a live shot, but I can't. And uh, But we're doing good, and we're going to have a good show, even if we're missing a few of the pieces. So, Paul, for our audience, you've been on our show, and you did explain a little bit about who you are. But if you could do that again for us, that would be fantastic. Sure. So the organization I work for, Americans for Tax Reform, uh, has been around since mid-1980s. And uh, we work on a wide range of, of public policy issues, uh, both taxes and regulations. Um, one of our principal projects nationally is asking candidates for office to sign something called the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, which is a written commitment to oppose tax hikes. Uh, but as your viewers know, um, often stopping tax hikes is step one in a multi-step process for getting good government. There are also regulations uh, that can be just as consequential for businesses and consumers. And so um, since the mid-1980s, we've worked on a wide range of issues, uh, energy issues, healthcare issues, transportation issues, uh, at all levels of the government, local, state, and federal. And since uh, about 2012, 2013, uh, one of the issues that we've also worked on uh, has been vaping, tobacco harm reduction, and both uh, how excise taxes could negatively impact uh, progress that's been made in tobacco harm reduction, uh, but also at the federal level, how regulations uh, could disrupt and destroy an industry that, as we've seen it, is not only saving lives when smokers transition to these products, but also saving taxpayers tens of billions of dollars in the form of uh, lower expenditures on healthcare programs, at least over the long term. And so, for the last six years, uh, we've done a lot of work at the state and federal level, both fighting tax hikes, highlighting the negative consequences of regulations, uh, and then many of your viewers may know uh, about some of our work over the last five months uh, in terms of trying to prevent a return to 1920s era prohibition uh, for vapor products in the U.S. And I did want to talk to you about that because, I mean, if you look back to, you know, 100 years ago, it was the roaring 20s. And one of the things that fueled uh, that growth and fun was the national prohibition on the sale and consumption of alcohol. And here we are now 100 years later, and the same uh, forces, in a way, really, um, are pushing another prohibition, and this time the target's vaping. Yeah, and and as we've pointed out, and as your viewers know, uh, prohibition in the 1920s wasn't exactly a success. Uh, there were certainly a lot of factors that led to some sort of coalition in government to think it might be an interesting exercise. Um, but no one walked away from prohibition and looked back and said, well, we achieved our goal. No one drinks anymore. And that was a, a good 
effort for government to undertake. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, people began pushing prohibition on vapor products at the state level. And of course, it was something that was contemplated uh, this past summer as well. And, and for some businesses, it's something, a prospect that many still face. And then we'll talk about what, what that means from a regulatory front in the next couple of months. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it has never worked with marijuana in terms of reducing use of the products. And for many other uh, attempts and pushes for prohibition, which again, can come in the form of high taxes uh, or bans outright, it didn't work. And, and certainly there's an irony in that we returned to an experiment in that, at least in terms of considering it, 100 years after the first time we looked at it. Um, but, but I think a lot of businesses over the last couple of months have done a very good job in, in highlighting the consequences of, of such an experiment. Um, and I think we've certainly been a part of that, that conversation as well. How close um, was or is still the U.S. vaping industry to complete annihilation? On September 11th, when the president announced in the Oval Office that um, vaping was getting people sick, uh, that it was uh, a big industry, um, and that the government was going to look at banning all of these products. Uh, White House tweeted out a video from HHH Secretary Alex Azar saying they were going to ban all flavored products, including uh, excluding tobacco flavors, which is still flavor too. But they announced that on September 11th and September 12th. Um, now, it was going to take at least 30 days for them to come up with the sort of guidance that would have done that. But I do think... Um, that at the beginning of September and even into uh, late September, it was a real threat, um, a totally unnecessary threat, but a real one. And uh, again, this is something that HHS and the FDA wanted. Arguably, there are probably still people within both agencies that do want it. There are certainly a lot of members of Congress, whether it's Frank Pallone in New Jersey uh, or even a number of the leading Democrats running for president that still want it today. Uh, but I do think that at least until mid-October of last year, uh, it was a serious threat and something that was on the table because you don't have the president of the United States head of HHS saying that this is something they're going to do unless it's a real threat. Um, fortunately, it's not where we ended up, uh, but it's not uh, the end of the story in terms of the decision that the FDA and HHS made with regards to some sort of exemption for products that exist on the market because Everyone that is exempt currently from immediate enforcement still faces those deadlines, the uh, PMTA deadlines, to get permission to remain on the market. And that is a process that was designed by tobacco companies for more traditional products. It has only ever worked for three companies in terms of getting permission to either bring a product to market or stay on the market. And it still uh, is a de facto ban on many products unless there is some certainty about the PMTA process and uh, the amount of time it's going to take to review these products. And so and the short answer is uh, we were pretty close to prohibition, but the fight's not over because we're going to see many states, including New Jersey and Massachusetts, look at doubling down at where they're at on these questions. Uh, and we still face a federal concern about how the federal government's going to look at applications for keeping products in the market beyond this spring. Yeah. And let's so let's get into let's kind of do this in a process now uh, from, I guess, when you started your Christmas holiday. Well, first, did you get a Christmas holiday? <laughs> a little bit, a little <laughs> bit of one. Um, yeah, I mean, that 
you know, we started hearing um, Wednesday before Christmas that there was going to be a meeting at the White House um, on vaping. And not necessarily surprised because our understanding is that there had been ongoing conversations since that stakeholder meeting um, with the president and the anti-vaping groups and industry and our organization, among others. Um, but the, sorry, my light just turned off. Oh, One yeah, the, sure, no problem. Uh, the, uh, what, what we what we heard uh, is that Secretary Azar was going to be presenting uh, to the president um, his revised guidance, that second plan. Obviously, the first one was rejected, and that was the plan that included uh, a ban on most products. And that was obviously worrying because um, things were kind of quiet in the weeks leading up to December after that stakeholder meeting. The White House obviously had asked businesses for suggestions on, on the process and guidance and regulations. Um, but when we began to hear uh, from sources both within the White House and HHS and the FDA uh, that a decision was imminent and that the guidance had been presented to the president, um, that wasn't the most concerning part of what we were hearing. What we were also hearing is that a September ban was still on the table. Wow. Um, what, we, what we, of course, now know is that uh, a part of that ban was obviously on the table because in limiting uh, flavored pod and cartridge-based systems, uh, with the exception of menthol, the difference between the original guidance and the final guidance, um, a part of that plan still came to fruition. Um, and then obviously on December 26th, OMB, Office of Management and Budget, which reviews guidance and regulations, received that formal guidance, meaning that the president signed off on it on the Thursday before Christmas. And so between that Thursday and the days after Christmas leading up to New Year's, um, I enjoyed a little bit of vacation. I was in Florida, so the weather was nice. Um, but certainly I uh, was trying to get as much information as possible before a formal announcement, which we know occurred this past week. Um, uh, and, and in order to ensure that uh, the decision was not as ambitious or aggressive as the one that was originally contemplated. And it obviously didn't end up um, as significant and destructive as that original plan, uh, but still is not a complete victory uh, for either consumers or businesses, both because we don't have certainty about PMT and because for so many smokers, many of the products that they use on a regular basis or could use on a regular basis are going to be removed from, from many supply chains, including convenience stores. So to kind of to kind of wrap it, make sure that we kind of catch this here is that so it's closed based pod systems or is it is it any pod system, right? It can be a refillable pod, too, as well. That's yeah. Bad. So um, I, I think there's still um, some businesses that are figuring out whether they are subject to immediate enforcement of the guidance that sell products in convenience store sh chains. Um, what we know is that if you marketed or sold a product that was not on the market, in August of 2016, the FDA and HHS are probably going to step up enforcement against those manufacturers in a way in which I don't think they have in the last three years. And so that applies to all products. Um, that's open systems, closed systems. They will prioritize products they're aware of, but it could happen at any time. The one exemption um, in, in the products that are, are closed system in nature is for Sigalikes. So a product like Enjoy Daily, um, it is not subject to immediate enforcement as it relates to a limitation on pod or cartridge-based systems. Um, you know, I don't have the full scope of all the products that might be exempt, but at least what we know from the guidance is that flavored cartridge and pod-based systems are ones that within 30 days before February 2nd, the FDA has said 
that they're going to begin enforcement of that PMTA prior deadline, which was uh, February 2007. If you weren't on the market by then, you're subject to seizures at worst case. Um, I still think within the next 30 days, it's yet to be seen about the specific list of products that may fall within that categorical definition of regulated products. And it's yet to be seen whether any lawsuits may be filed. Uh, and I'm a champion of lawsuits against the FDA. If there are any lawsuits <laughs> that are going to be filed against the FDA that may postpone enforcement further. So, you know, I don't think it's very difficult to find a court in the United States that may put a 30 or 60 or 90 day stay on this decision, especially because it's unclear as to all the products that are subject to immediate guidance. Um, and at that point, we're already close to May. And so that, that's obviously up in the air, but we'll know more by February 2nd if any businesses or associations decide to file lawsuits against the FDA based on the guidance that was released last week. So the big win here is, I guess, still uh, that the president uh, totally, you know, awoke to this issue and that after some consideration, step back, uh, we hope that he would step back further than he did. But when the compromise that he found um, was one where it was still, you know, recognizing the fact that there's all these small businesses and people working for them that are crucial um, uh, for the economy. And he also did give the nod to the, to the cessation aspect of everything. However, his language was still troubling. There was still the connection to illnesses. And, and I find that very troubling. Yeah, I, I think that um, anyone who expects the president of the United States to be the sort of expert that, that many of your previous guests or many of your viewers may be on this process um, too much. I mean, look, this is the president of the United States. He's not going to be an expert on every single issue. His job is not to be an expert on every single issue. Um, what I think uh, is different between some of the president's statements about vaping at Mar-a-Lago when he said it's getting people sick and his statements in September about vaping, is that between those two times, he has acknowledged that the sort of vaping that has gotten people sick is the vaping that consumers have engaged in with black market illicit THC products that are cut with a substance known as vitamin E acetate. In fact, Greg Conley pointed that out to the president at the White House during the November meeting, and the president said, that's right, he's right when he pointed out what the CDC had concluded in terms of products they tested. And so I think that acknowledging um, that vaping has gotten people sick is a nod to how most people understand this issue. If you're not a vapor, if you don't focus on the policy questions regarding the vapor industry, then you don't necessarily understand the nuances of differentiating between nicotine vapor use and THC vaping and, and vapor product use. And so it was a Trumpism, um, as you have to view many of the things that he says uh, about policy issues, similar to how in November he said that they were going to look at 21 or so. We knew that meant he was going to endorse Mitch McConnell's bill to raise the age of 21. But I had reporters calling me asking, well, what, are, what does we're so mean? Does that mean it's going to be 23 or 20? No, it was just a Trumpism. Um, and so um, you certainly would love for him to spend more time explaining that the sort of vaping that's gotten people sick is THC black market products and not nicotine products that you buy in vape shops or convenience stores. But I honestly think that's the best we could have gotten uh, from anyone in his position with a recognition that he is the first president ever to acknowledge 
the importance of tobacco harm reduction, both in a tweet on September 13th and numerous times since those September conversations began. And he has both said that he likes vaping as an alternative to smoking for adults and that it's a huge health advantage that if a smoker transitions to these products, it's good for them. I don't think we're going to get better than that in terms of his understanding or acknowledgement of these issues. And it's far better than Barack Obama ever gave a former smoker who initiated this entire process with the deeming rule. And it's better than I think we're going to get from any Democrat running for president, nearly all of which has said that they would support a full-scale ban on these products if they were elected in 2020. And that is exactly what's happened, right? So Joe Biden has come out, was it yesterday or the day before, with a full position on vaping? Yesterday and today. He doubled down saying that he would eliminate the vaping industry. In fact, when pressed uh, by someone at an Iowa town hall about the impact on small businesses, Joe Biden said that he did not care about small businesses and that he would eliminate these products because his understanding as I've said to a couple of reporters, was similar to perhaps the administration's understanding in August and September. He just missed the whole last five months of updates to this, uh, to the science regarding what products are getting people sick. And so um, he framed his understanding as a difference between uh, pushing science versus fiction and somehow framed the president's position on this as fiction, um, when the reality is that the CDC, FDA, HHS, and every sane person who has looked at these issues um, understands that, again, what has gotten people sick are not disposable products you buy in convenience stores or uh, vapor products that you buy in vape shops, which have been on the market for 10 years. Um, it's it's the THC, the vitamin E acetate, the black market products. And um, so, yeah, he, he doubled down today. He's now twice said that, that he would remove these products from the market, that he would ban them, that he would eliminate the industry. Um, and eliminate. That is eliminate. That was the word in Iowa today, that he would eliminate the vaping industry. And so uh, even if you are uh, inclined to be left of center politically, if you are a vapor, if you are a voter, you've got to have pretty significant concerns with someone who promises in the aftermath of an understanding that what gets people sick is black market THC and not nicotine to wipe out this entire industry because you do not care about small businesses, you've got to have pretty significant concerns uh, with people like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and many of the other Democrats running for president. Now, the president, current president, Donald Trump, um, isn't 100% perfect on these issues. Um, and I don't know that we ever could have expected that he would be. But for in January, him to still be acknowledging that there's a benefit to these products for adult smokers and for his Democrat opponents, um, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Andrew Yang, Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, all essentially saying that they want to ban these products and that flavors have to be removed from the market and attacking the FDA for not doing that. Uh, I think that the heat of the political discussions regarding where vapors net out on who they support in 2020 is just getting started. So I've been trying to uh, make this point as possible. Uh, for our viewers that are a little left to center or center for that matter. Um, I mean, it's all Democrats. Let's be real honest here. The entire pro this entire anti-vaping movement is a Democratic movement. There are consistently 13 senators, all from the Democratic Party, are the ones that harangue the FDA multiple times a year for over a decade, for sure. And so, you know, you don't see Republicans on that list. 
It's always yeah. Democrats. I mean, what I would say is I'm obviously for anyone who's followed uh, my work on this issue or others know that I'm right of center politically. Um, it's worth noting, though, that many uh, of those that are quoted um, on on vaping issues, the press loves to quote, quote Republicans when they agree with them. Mitt Romney is horrible on these issues. He was a Republican nominee for president of the United States. He is probably worse than many Democrats in the U.S. Senate because Republicans hold a majority and, uh, and, and he has absolutely no understanding of the complexity or importance of this industry. You've also got people like Congressman King um, who joined Democrats, a Republican from New York who joined Democrats in some of these crusades. And so it's, it's certainly, uh, you got to understand that not all Republicans are good on this. Many are bad. Um, but when it comes to Democrats, what has always baffled me having worked on this for the last six, seven years is that traditionally uh, the Democrat Party has embraced the concept of harm reduction. It was the Republican Party and many within right of center political circles that had questions or concerns about the government's role in promoting harm reduction. Um, things like needle exchanges. Um, the whole concept of harm reduction originated out of places like San Francisco and big cities like New York. Um, and it was the Democrat Party that embraced it. It hasn't been until recently that in places like Indiana, when Mike Pence was president and the current Surgeon General, who was the top health professional in Indiana under Governor Pence, uh, pushed a needle exchange program to deal with an outbreak of illnesses because people were sharing dirty needles. Um, and so my, you know, it's odd that we've got this uh, harm reduction flop as it relates to the parties, because we many Republicans embrace the harm reduction potential of e-cigarettes, um, and most Democrats reject it, and they reject it at the same time that they embrace marijuana, not for recreate, not for medicinal purposes, but for fun. Um, and so, I would love for more Democrats to join the sensible uh, crusade for regulatory relief uh, and and sanity as it relates to vaping. But for the last six years, um, in many cases, uh, our, our enemies on these questions have been left of center politically. And look, a lot of Republicans, I would describe as left of center politically. Um, but it is unfortunate that we have fallen into this partisan trench of warfare wherein, where Republicans are on one side and Democrats are on the other. I think that we're fortunate that Donald Trump won in 2016 because President Hillary Clinton would have already overseen the passage of the PMTA deadline in 2018, and most products would have already been wiped from the market. Um, but no one's perfect, and everyone needs to be persuaded, um, and, and you've got to persuade people with different messages. Um, if we were approaching a President Hillary Clinton, I think our approach on, on jobs and votes may have been different. Um, but it certainly is unfortunate that so many Democrats in Congress are so wrong on this issue and will not accept anything short of prohibition. Yeah. And well, you know what that says to me is that says to me, this isn't just a regular party line issue. This is an actual moral issue. I mean, this is the full on uh, disgust that they have for smokers. It starts with the disgust they have with smokers. And it's not even a class thing. I don't think it's just just this is huge disgust they've got. And, you know, the whole they hate vaping so much. And I think what that does is it betrays their argument that nicotine is so um, addictive that's, you know, they're crazy. They go, their kids, it's, my kid has gotten a hold of this nicotine and they change, their personalities change. They can't, they can't get up in the morning. They can't, they can't run. They can't swim. I don't know my own child. 
these progressives are saying, right? Just lunatic, right? But this is the typical progressive crap. And so they're like, oh, my child, I don't know, the nicotine has got a hold of them. They're never going to get it out, the nicotine. But meanwhile, they look at adults and they go, why don't you just quit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so, so you're saying that instead of quitting, uh, well, smoke or quit, there, there's no in between because you're telling us that it's easy to quit. And I think part of the reason that our message to the president resonated is early on, um, I made the argument that it would be unwise and inappropriate to treat vapors like deplorables. And for those that follow politics, you may have known that that was a big phrase in 2016 as it relates to um, what Donald Trump said Hillary Clinton was treating people like in terms of looking down upon them as ivory tower elitists who knew what was better for them on a wide range of policy questions. And so my recommendation to the White House was do not treat adults who perhaps may have struggled their entire life with nicotine addiction as deplorables. Do not treat the choices that they have made where there is an increasingly um, universal consensus that choosing alternative products that exist in the United States, reduced risk products like e-cigarettes, do not treat them as, as deplorable people that need government to save them because they don't. In fact, what they need is their local vape shop to stay open and for products to be available in convenience stores next to cigarettes that allow them to have alternatives. Um, but there is a growing issue within left of center circles on a wide range of policy issues which is this belief that the government knows best on so many questions. And it's not, it's, and it's not unique to vaping. It's, it's a wide range of issues. And I think part of the reason that our message with the president resonated is that we explained that vaping was solving a public health problem, not teen use of these products, adult use of cigarettes, and arguably even teen use of cigarettes, because we saw the largest decline in past 30-day use of cigarettes in 2019, according to the National Youth Tobacco Survey. And so um, it, looking down on people who have addiction is never a good position for a regulator or a policymaker because it assumes that there are not alternatives that exist or that the market cannot solve problems. And we know with vaping that it does and it can. Um, but but it is an issue where, where so many, both candidates running for president who are Democrats, and lawmakers across the country who think that um, parental instincts um, should dictate public policy, um, when the reality is that if you're concerned about your team using an e-cigarette or a vapor product, have a conversation with them. There's no need to call your member of Congress and tell them they have to ban these products. Um, it's also worth acknowledging that teens have been experimenting with risky behaviors for decades whether it's marijuana, if you want to consider that a risky behavior, whether it's premarital sex, whether it's reckless driving without a seatbelt, those are not all things. In fact, none of those things should be regulated by members of Congress. And it's just this interesting issue of vaping where it's just the newest thing that parents have to be concerned about, fueled by the number of press stories that we've seen oh. over the last two years about this epidemic, a word that we've now reinvented a definition for that isn't related to harm caused to consumers as much well, as it's experimentation. Let me, let, me inter let, me interrupt, let me interrupt you for a second, because I think it's really important to just make the point that it wasn't we 
This came directly out of the CDC and the FDA calling it an epidemic. And it, yeah. it was its purposeful language uh, on September 18th, 2018, when then Commissioner Scott Gottlieb came out and he, and he two phrases, two words, epidemic and clear and present danger. When the yeah. top public health agency in the world uses those, that language, that is what you use to quarantine people. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's un, I mean, that's the strongest language you've got. Yeah. I mean, when, when I hear epidemic, I think of uh, outbreak with Morgan Freeman and Dennis Hoffman, where you've got, right. a bomb, you've got a bomb a community to protect us from Ebola. Um, I, you know, it, it, it is a term that is only accurately used to describe widespread harm inflicted on patients experimentation with a product even if you do not like that product is not an infliction of harm and so this redefinition of the role of public health and the role of regulators to dissuade experimentation that we do not like or, or don't have a full picture of disregards decades of precedent for the role of the fda and hhs and public health professionals when there's an E. coli outbreak in spinach and salad, well, that's uh, that could that that's something that denotes harm because you shouldn't eat spinach or salad that has you know E. coli in it. Uh, but that's because we know what E. coli does to those that ingest and digest it. Um, experimental nicotine use, um, even though it should be discouraged. Um, and, and obviously you shouldn't sell products to teens. In fact, that's obviously illegal now and has been for a number of years, mm -hmm. um, to suggest that because we saw a rise in experimental use of these products after 2016, 2017, and that that was harm in itself is absurd because again, we still have above 20% of teens that report in every single one of these national surveys that the government does that they use marijuana. When is the last time that the FDA or HHS or the public health community has said we have a pot epidemic? They don't because they're too busy championing the ribbon cutting ceremonies for the new pot shop that opens in the new state that makes it legal. And this is not a crusade against marijuana. It's just an example of how hypocritical that crusade has been, which is guided by morals um, and your, your, your lack of interest in people having those consumer freedoms more so than it is any health questions uh, about you know direct harm or lack thereof for the consumers that decide to use products. Your you, when you're describing that, I, you know, for me, it's I love this conversation because it's so infrequent that it happens. It's this. It, I think that public health always not. I think I know it's a fact that public health has always been in the we're telling you what to do uh, business, and you know, and we know what's good for you whether you know it or not. And I think that's just the fundamental thing about public health. It comes from progressivism because the progressive progressive mentality is public health. Public health is progressive and you can't separate the two. And when people say, oh, well, you're doing politics here. No, this isn't politics. This is like ideology. They've got a concept and an understanding of the way in which the world should work. And A first, number one, is the fact that they believe in an individual, but they believe that society is prior to the individual. And that means every single time when it comes down to it, brass tacks, it's what's good for society over the individual always means they will use force in whatever means it is to 
change that individual's behavior. And because society is the social organism, so they see a harmony that exists amongst the collectivized group of people. And we're not talking, socialism is a part of progressivism. Communism is a part of progressivism. Fascism is a part of progressivism. Progressivism sits over top. And it's this longing for creating um, a earthly utopia. It's a heaven on earth. It's, it's the redemption. It's very millennial orientated. It's very end days orientated. So no wonder climate change ha- is, you know, exploded into this huge 12 years and we're going to all die, you know, and they just love that stuff. They just, and, and they know that it's powerful um, because really they're the secular, they're the new Christian masses. Think about all those people that were the Christian masses up until just 150 years ago, that didn't go away. Those masses that have been the masses for thousands of years uh, that held Christian ideals, which a lot of progressivism, it, there is Christian ideals in there. They, have, they, they think they're secular, but really they're a Christian heresy. Yeah, I mean, I, thinking back to when I first got involved in, in this issue and started to meet many of the business owners um, that that were first-time entrepreneurs in this industry. I'm thinking back to the World Vapor Expo in Miami and the Electronic Cigarette Convention in Southern California, and then the 40 or so sh- other shows I went to between 2014 and 2016. Um, you know, I remember my first vapor trade show, and immediately when I got back, this was a new issue for me. I wrote an op-ed for the Daily Caller um, saying that I was in Miami to warn businesses about the pending threat of government intervention in an industry uh, filled with entrepreneurs who may not have been business owners prior to this pursuit. Mm-hmm. And I was right. Um, and the reason that I, I don't think I was some sort of, uh, you know, smart guy who could tell the future as much as it was an understanding of the two political coalitions um, in the United States. And the modern political left views government as a solution to any problem that they can identify, more so than the modern political right, where most niche interests in the right of center political world, and this is libertarians, it's conservatives, it's much of the Republican Party, but not all of it, because people like Mitt Romney exist, um, on their vote moving issue, on the issue that motivates someone to be a part of the right of center political coalition. They want the government on that most important issue to leave them alone. It's true of gun owners. It's true of homeschoolers. It's true of most small businessmen uh, and women. Um, and as I've argued to the White House, and, and I think has increasingly become clear with vaping, it's vapors. Now, that's not to say that if you're a vapor, you should vote Republican, because I think some Republicans probably should get primary over these issues. As much as it is to suggest your point is correct which is that the modern left of center political apparatus is designed to be more involved in your lives, to impose more controls on what exists in an economy and in society. And even though Republicans are often wrong in a lot of issues, um, including almost on vaping, but still kind of on vaping, um, on, on principle issues that motivate how the Republican Party thinks about these issues, um, you have to, and this is this. I think guided a lot of our engagement with the White House and Trump's campaign between September and December. Um, there is an understanding that the market can solve so many problems. 
transportation in urban communities. Uber and Lyft solved that problem. And the taxi cartel tried to put up barriers and taxes and bans and regulations to present, prevent it. On healthcare, medical innovations and new products brought to market can drive down costs. Well, the other party thinks that government's got to provide it all and you got to pay a lot of money and you should have no options because if one option from the government solves all your problems, that's the best way to do it. And so you're right. Um, I, I wish I was wrong on this. I wish you were wrong on this. I wish that the, the modern uh, progressive apparatus embraced tobacco harm reduction to the same extent to which they still embrace harm reduction on things like clean needle exchanges. Um, but they just haven't. And maybe that changes one day or at some point, I don't see it happening um, because it just is so inconsistent with their general approach to public policy. Um, but I wish that that it was the case that I could have more productive conversations with the average Democrat than I can with the average Republican. That just hasn't been my experience. Right. Well, true. The market aspect of things is a real promising um it's a promising uh, attribute for Republicans, and it is a huge detriment uh, when it comes to the progressives because um, they they see the amount of money that's been made in the billions, right, in this industry, and 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 they think they're disgusted by that. They're disgusted by smokers that disgust yeah. moves to vaping. But I think more importantly, you know, when we first started covering this, we we story, you know, well over four years ago now. The early people would always say it, and we still hear it. Oh, you know, they're really upset because they didn't invent this solution and, and stuff. And I was thinking, okay, well, that's, that makes sense. And it still makes sense, you know, that it wasn't invented by them. But it, but even more importantly, it was that nobody got their permission. And then mm -hmm. even way more importantly than that, who said you can make all this money? Because yeah. they hate capitalism. They hate free market, unregulated uh, dollars. If if a dollar is earned unregulated, it better be underground, and 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 they'll still find a way to take their piece of it. But unregulated dollars, it's probably the worst thing ever for for progressives. And and what is is still baffling about this is that the sensible approach from progressives and tobacco control aligned left of center political interest should have been. For years, we have tried to eliminate the tobacco industry. This is what they should have said. They should have said that through taxes and regulations and restrictions on sales and restrictions on who can buy things where and how you can advertise, that we have failed to eliminate the tobacco industry. In fact, since the Tobacco Control Act passed, tobacco companies only got richer. And so what they should have said is that, wow, this is clearly a disruptive industry, not for tax payments that the government collects, but for the cigarettes that companies sell in terms of volume. And the reason that companies like Altria make, made an investment in a company like Juul is because the direct correlation between a decline in cigarette volumes and cigarette sales lined up with a direct increase in the sale of Juul pods. Marlboro smokers were switching over to Juul. Um, certainly, they got a lot more consumers purchasing those products than simply Marlboro smokers, but that's what motivates investments from the private sector. So if you're a reasonable Democrat, the way you should have approached that is said, wow, uh, this is an industry that is destroying the tobacco industry. And instead of um, both allowing uh, the sort of regulatory capture that's going to destroy the vapor industry to move forward and championing it, 
perhaps we should champion the small business case because vape shops are doing a far better job at taking down tobacco companies than Matt Myers and the American Cancer Society and the Lung Association and the FDA ever could at harming the business interests of tobacco companies. And so that's what's always baffled me. I mean, you, you have people that have contempt for the tobacco industry. And I'm, I'm not one of them. I don't care. You want to smoke, smoke. You want to vape, vape. I, don't, I couldn't care one way or the other. But I, and, was, and I agree with you. Keep, keep going. But I just wanted to make sure I got that. I totally agree with you. Yeah, but but for so many to have championed the master settlement agreement and how great it's been that they've been able to crack down on tobacco. Again, all ironic because tobacco com- tobacco control act only helped tobacco companies. But for uh, for those that that championed that that cause and effort of taking down tobacco companies to have missed that that small businesses were doing a better job than public policy. Uh, or regulatory decisions ever could at, at harming the business interest of companies they despise has always baffled me. Um, and, and maybe it goes to the point of they don't believe that free markets can solve problems, that the government has to be involved in somehow. And if you don't get the government's permission from the onset, you must be a bad actor. Um, and, and all of that begins to come together when people start to get sick and you don't care what the explanation is. But you can easily blame a, an industry or a business that didn't get your permission first, um, but but certainly that 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 hypocrisy um, and and lack of embrace by left of center political interest has always confused me um, because they should have been the champion of of tobacco harm reduction and small businesses in the vapor industry more so than Republicans are today, um, perhaps because they have heard from small businesses about their concerns. Uh, but it's certainly always been baffling to me. So let me ask you this. Um, yeah. The, okay. So I, I don't want to get too in the weeds for our viewers. Come on. It's 2020. We should be partying. Let's have fun. Right. It's, it's roaring twenties. Uh, uh, no, but I, here's a conversation that I'd like to have now. I don't, when we talk about the settlement agreement, I mean, it's true. I say to our viewers all the time, they go, oh, it's all about the tobacco money. It's all about tobacco money. I go, no, it's not just about the tobacco money. Oh, it's all about big pharma. It's all about, it's not just about big pharma, right? Um, it's a combination. And then if you miss the ideology, you're, you're going to miss fighting it. So, okay, enough of that. Fair enough. But the, the money is there. Like it was what, 300, the numbers are not, we don't need to be exact, but 365 million or something like that over 25 uh, billion. 365 billion over 25 years. There was billions handed out right away. It that money was used to start the Center for Tobacco Products at FDA. Yeah. So, which is the regulatory body and the thing that spews out so much of uh, crap uh, with regard to vaping. So, there's no and and it doles out you know hundreds of millions of dollars for research. So, to, you know, to even think that that there's you know a huge pipeline of good research on the way. There's just a small number of, of really dedicated, diehard, excellent researchers that seem to be able to get funding to do their stuff, whereas the rest of it is just a mountain of crap. So that being said, the money comes in. And then, of course, we all know that each one of the states gets a certain amount of money in, in the billions each year, parts of the settlement, and then extra based on, you know, whether teens didn't start, uh, didn't stop smoking. So blah, blah, blah. So and those billions went to the states and a lot of the states, they, you know, borrowed against it. So we know that for sure they issued bonds and so forth. And so they basically spent the money and they spent the money already before it's even come in. 
and and they owe a lot of money on that money. So there's definitely really good reason for them to not want uh, smoking uh, to go away. And I always describe it as the entire system. I mean, we're talking billions. So we're talking the entire system needs structural smoking. There needs to be, just like, you know, the capitalist marketplace needs a certain amount of structural unemployment for it to work. For the whole, you know, machine here, research, tobacco control, states, general funding, everything else, there needs to be a certain amount of structural smoking in place, or it will really destabilize the system, and they haven't even been able to give much thought to what that would look like. They're, you know, big, big. Yeah, I mean, and as an organization that, um, as a matter of principle, fights all tax increases, uh, you know, the number one target for tax hike between 2000 and 2019 uh, was the traditional tobacco and cigarette industry, four times as many tax hikes on cigarettes than that on on liquor. And so it's not only the, you know, pre-negotiating agreement with MSA payments, um, it's also that any time a state has looked for an infusion of new cash for a new project, whether it's filling potholes or giving teachers raises, um, the tobacco industry has always been the top target. Um, and so you're absolutely right that the state governments are so reliant on smokers uh, funding current priorities, but they're often looked to for new priorities as well. And this is certainly the case more so in down economic times than up economic times, which we're currently experiencing in the U.S. generally. Um, and, and, you know, the, the entire premise of the initial excise tax, uh, the imposition of excise taxes on cigarettes and even the MSA payment and payments that states receive is that those dollars were supposed to go towards healthcare programs, smoking cessation programs. And it is such a small amount of money uh, in terms of tax dollars that is actually collected from smokers that goes towards healthcare programs, whether it's Medicaid, whether it's children's health insurance, uh, whether it's other direct uh, cessation advertising campaigns, that uh, we're in this uh, vortex of reliance by state lawmakers and appropriators on smoking in a way that is far broader than was ever imagined because now the State Education Association needs smokers to continue to pay or some pre-negotiated teachers raise from two years ago or four years ago, or maybe even next year. That's, the transportation, insidious. that's insidious. The, Sorry, the that. transportation, yeah, the transportation lobby, uh, that want uh, state contracts for new state transportation priorities, building a bridge, fixing roads, whatever it may be. Um, the amount of money that so many states can make and have made on smokers uh, that you have created a very broad coalition of money hungry people um, who don't care about vaping, they don't care about smoking, but they really love the hundreds of millions and in some states, billions of dollars that is generated from those people for your projects. And this is not some conspiratorial idea to suggest that, uh, uh, you know, local, local teachers union wants uh, smokers to continue to smoke as much as it is to describe that there are a lot of interests uh, that rely on the money that smokers dedicate uh, or get dedicated to some pet cause and pet project. Governments make more money than the combined entire supply and manufacture and retail chain on the sale of a pack of cigarettes than any of those private businesses. 
And so every pack of cigarettes sold, the government makes more money in every single case than all of the private sector businesses that were involved from production to distribution. Um, and, and it's a real problem. And there's no way to solve. I don't think there's any way to solve it. <laughs> um, but the you know existence of the vapor market certainly hasn't been a disruptor and forced conversations uh, with states that either cashed in their MSA payments as bonds early um, or as states look at faster than normal declines in cigarette use than they may have anticipated. And maybe that means states are going to go after other sort of businesses or taxpayers to compensate for that loss. Uh, but it certainly has been a disruptor for a wide range of budget priorities and, and lawmakers over the last five years. Paul, one of the things that I've uh, felt certain on, you could um, disabuse me of this of this thought, um, is that is that the is this settlement going to be renegotiated? Because it, it was 25 years, and so that was 1999, 98, 99. So it's coming up in a couple of years. This whole settlement's going to be over. Has there been a discussion about what happens after that? And, it, and so this is a multi-part question. Has there been any talk about that? And if not, why not, right? I mean, what, what, what is going to happen? Because that's, you know, billions of dollars. Does uh, right now, are the tobacco companies expecting that that's it? You know, they paid their dues? Or is there not some expectation that there's going to be a new settlement or an extension of that settlement? Of course there would be, right? Of course is the idea. And then if that's the case, isn't it very convenient that they've managed to move the risk profile of vaping from 95% safer than smoking to as deadly or even deadlier than smoking? Thus, if that's in the public mind, just roll that right into the new uh, settlement agreement. Yeah, I mean, bottom-feeding trial lawyers for the last four years uh, have been pushing these um, BS, BS litigation suits against a wide range of companies, not only limited to Juul, uh, where they were running national television ads asking if you've been harmed or injured by Juul to give them a call and help you sue them. But a wide range of vapor businesses have been targeted by uh, trial lawyers who would love uh, to be a part of some class action lawsuit against the vapor industry. Um, and certainly the extent to which they have uh, attempted to move the goalpost on what harm means. It certainly doesn't help that the FDA believes that experimentation with the product, regardless of actual harm inflicted to a consumer, is a part of that equation. Because arguably now a trial lawyer can say that the FDA's unprecedented is use of a product is harm itself. Um, I don't think that there's a discussion underway to um, these businesses to another settlement agreement because uh, you know you would have had to prove some sort of new harm over the last 20 years. Um, but what the question presented to states is how they're going to deal with loss in that money. And historically, the way that they've addressed that is through more tax hikes. And so you may just have a state that says, well, uh, this tobacco company is now paying $200 million less to the state over this period of time. And so We'll just raise the tax or, or floor price on a pack of cigarettes by this amount of money so that we're even. That, of course, would be absurd. Um, but uh, absurdity often makes its way into public policy, especially on consumer freedom and tobacco issues. Uh, but but I, I do think there are a lot of money-hungry people that would like to target the vapor industry in the same way that they targeted the tobacco industry. 
Of course, the difference being that we don't have decades of uh, evidence about false marketing practices and harm inflicted on consumers. So uh, if I hear you correctly here, you, we don't know that there's discussions about extending the settlement agreement. And you're saying that it's likely not to happen. So if that's the case, then why aren't they all preparing for the fact that this money's going away? So that almost takes the money issue off the table for one of the biggest uh, uh, rationalizations for the hate on vaping, at least long term. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I have not heard um, a, a reasonable member of state legislative leadership suggests that they renegotiate these sort of uh, agreements in a way that generates a lot of money for a specific state. Um, what we are going to see, however, is if Democrats successfully win the White House, successfully take back the Senate, or even not, proposals to raise the federal excise tax on tobacco products, and they will absolutely loop e-cigarettes in there. In fact, we saw a Ways and Means hearing that imposed for the first time House Ways and Means Committee pass out of the committee a new tax on e-cigarettes. And so um, vapors are going to be implicated in this threat as well, depending on who's in charge and at what level. Um, but I, I think that states are increasingly going to look at the money they may lose as a result of the end of those sort of agreements and and figure out who to go after. Um, and, and it would not surprise me if they, they not only targeted current smokers with more taxes, but went after these new group of people who they don't like, which are vapors, with, with either taxes or floor prices, uh, you know, establishments of minimum price standards like they have in some states on cigarettes and so on and so forth. And, and, and this goes back to my earlier point of the set of lobbying interests that may be lined up against the vapor industry and tobacco industry. And that's all the people that rely on that tobacco money, the cigarette excise tax money for their dedicated pet project. Um, and so this is something over the long term where we have to build more allies in, uh, in, in states on the concept of tobacco harm reduction, because at the end of the day, if someone only cares about money for their pet project, then they could be a credible opponent to the sort of sensible reforms that many of your viewers may believe in. Right. So um, we're just going to, uh, uh, we're wrapping up here. I've got another 15 minutes or so left, and I want us to talk all 2020 going forward. How do, do we fight this thing uh, moving forward? But before we do that, I have to show you guys all uh, how you can help RegWatch fight this thing. And of, of course, please go to support.regulatorwatch.com. And here you can find uh, some a new update um, to our little funness as we're asking you for money is the support in action. And this is a great place to go. Uh, and this will get updated too as well as we go. But right now this really encapsulates uh, from September, if the thing will go there, thank you. From September until the end of December 31st, 2019, amazingly, we did 64, actually 65 in the end, uh, RegWatch episodes were produced in four months following the lung scare. 37 of those were live episodes totaling over 45 hours of live broadcasting in 16 weeks um, over this lung scare. Did pretty good too, three quarters of a million views. And for our content, that's great. You know, we're regulatory, that kind of thing. You know, we're not doing, you know, we're not doing cat videos and we don't uh, blow clouds. So here you can find um, all of our videos and they'll keep getting added. So this is a great place to go. We could not have produced this content without the great supporters uh, from both business 
uh, whether that's e-juice companies, you know, vaping companies, you know, uh, even even retailers that have been kind enough to kick in, and all of the individual supporters too as well. You can see, man, we really killed it last fall. So much so I killed my wrist. But you, some of you may know that or not. And we're actually broadcasting from our new studio, same spot, just uh, different uh, makeup. Uh, but anyhow, you can just load it. I mean, it's crazy. It, this is insane amount of content uh, for four weeks or for four months. So anyhow, I do encourage you guys to take a look at it. It is a great place to go. And you can see Paul here. Here he is right there uh, from our DC, the DC rally coverage and um, excellent good time. So again, go to support.regulatorwatch.com and also I mind the internet is see everything's wired a little bit differently here so I'm, I'm having a feeling that i don't have the fastest of internet happening i think that's the case and again check out who supports reg watch and demand vape uh, moved into our anchor supporter position thank you so much john glauser and that's demand and juno uh which as you know are all under mr glauser's uh fine tutelage and of course, Flavor Art and Divine Light Labs and Stealth again, and then our great monthly rock stars. And so I don't mean to blow through so fast, but I'm going to only to get back to Paul. So Paul, my friend, um, all right, 2020, what can, I want to ask, a, a, let's maybe break this up because there's how can you support Trump if that's the case? How, uh, how can you fight the Dems if that's the case? So there's two for you to start with. So um, I think first focus on what we need from the administration before May 12th. And some of this may be contingent on um, actions that businesses decide to take in the next 30 days before enforcement actions begin against those that are subject to the new guidance. So the pod and cartridge-based systems for flavored products. Um, and some of it, I think, is regardless of what actions businesses take, the expectation of reform or certainty for PMTAs before May. Um, my hope, as I mentioned earlier, is that um, some business or association or, or entity decides to sue uh, the administration over the guidance as it was promulgated. Um, not necessarily promulgated, just released. Um, and the, the reason being, I think there's a strong legal case. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I do um, look at a lot of these issues. Um, there's a strong legal case for the economic impact of this guidance. And, and many businesses were spared and given a temporary reprieve, which is fantastic. And that's something that we work towards. But the reality is that we have decades of precedent at the federal level that requires that guidance that has an economic impact that exceeds $100 million annually must go through some of the same formal processes as rulemaking. So it has to be subject to a public comment period, for example. The Office of Management and Budget has to do a cost-benefit analysis. My understanding is that at a minimum, the closed cartridge and pod-based system market in 2018 was a $3 billion industry. Well, I did go to public school, but $3 billion is a little bit bigger than $100 million. And there was no cost-benefit analysis done by OMB or the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. So that's just one potential legal strategy that businesses could pursue. And this administration is actually already losing lawsuits on guidance that was issued that did not go through the public comment period that had an economically significant impact on states. So that's next two, three weeks. 
before May, obviously, if any manufacturers or businesses that are subject to PMTAs are watching, um, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty about what will happen if a business puts together a PMTA and whether or not they should even try. I'm not going to suggest people blatantly disregard what the government tells them to do, because at any point you could be subject to seizures or penalties and, and um, you know, all the bad stuff the government can do to you. Um, but one of the things that um, Secretary Alex Azar said in the initial press call uh, where the guidance was rolled out last week to reporters is that HHS was committed to helping small businesses through the PMTA process. That was actually a surprise. Um, this is not a, an agency that is committed to helping small businesses because for the five months prior to this announcement, it was clear it was an agency trying to destroy small businesses. So when pressed on that question, Secretary Azar said that one of the things that they were looking at was allowing businesses to cite a master file for the basis of the PMTAs that they submit. Now, this is not a new idea. Uh, in fact, this is an idea that was put forth by prior FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Um, but with a deadline of May 12th to have submitted these PMTAs, this is obviously something that there's an expectation to be codified in the form of either further guidance or a concrete written commitment issued publicly that allows for some sort of reform in that space. I think there are a lot of other ideas about PMTA reform, um, both in terms of potentially dividing the process up into one where at the beginning of the PMTA process, you only have to comply with the statutory requirements of a PMTA, and then the broader requirements that have been implemented or suggested or expected of other businesses in the last five years uh, or so are, are phased in while the FDA comes up with, say, a checklist of things that should or shouldn't be in products or how hot they should be and temperature regulation, so on and so forth. It's really, really complicated. But Okay, so, but I mean, but hold on. It's really, really complicated. And it is like so well past dead time here for yeah, that, this to be clear. I mean, it's yeah, May. And, yeah, I, yeah. And, and that's the concerning part, but one that I think the industry needs to now press with FDA, HHS, and the White House, which is, you know, Prior to September, I think a lot of businesses that sell these products expected that in the fall and winter, they were going to have the opportunity to press the administration on the importance of reform because of those pending May deadlines, which were established last June in the, in the uh, Maryland lawsuit brought by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Unfortunately, the business uh, sector and vapors have been somewhat distracted um, mm. in trying to avoid full-scale prohibition. Right. And so um, right. you're right that we're obviously at a very truncated timeline. Um, but again, this is a commitment from HHS. And if you listen to Trump's Mar-a-Lago statements, again, from the lens of a Trumpism, in terms of how he described the PMTA process, um, they're going to take products off the market, they're going to look at them, see if they're safe, and then bring them back onto the market. That's how the president essentially described the PMTA process. But as we know, it's not a quick process. So are there going to be guarantees of an answer? And you don't want a guarantee of an answer unless the answer is going to be yes. And so what are the benchmarks that the FDA is going to use in assessing the onslaught of PMT applications they may receive? So from what, third, from what we understand, Paul, there is not going to be an onslaught. Like there might be 10. Yeah. And um, that that is the big issue. And that that's one that we pressed with HHS and the White House as well, which is what is the agency 
and administration going to do when come May 13th, most of the businesses that were immune from immediate enforcement of PMTAs because of the guidance that was just issued, what are they going to do on the question of enforcement? Are they going to ignore it like they kind of have on the August 2016th question in terms of new products brought to market, which is in many cases been ignored by the administration, for better or worse, that's just a reality. Um, and if they're going to ignore it, why did we even go through this whole exercise over the last five months? And so the point and pressure has to be on the administration to be the following, that because it is important to enforce against non-compliant businesses, at least in terms of those that may have brought products to market uh, that, that came to market after August of 2016, at least that's important to the FDA and HHS. I'm not making a policy judgment about business decisions. That's just at least important to the FDA and HHS. Then they have to make a decision about how aggressive that enforcement action is going to be. And, and on the subject of 2020, are they going to begin seizing products in the middle of the presidential campaign? Because that doesn't mitigate any of the political concerns that the president is aware of. And it doesn't mitigate any of his statements about wanting to save small businesses and protect the industry, which he has said multiple times. And in fact, it makes it all worse because as the presidential campaign heats up, all the local stories are going to be Trump administration decides to start shutting down vape shops. And that's not the story that the White House wants. And it's not the story HHS or the FDA wants. And so with that understanding that we only now have as a result of Mar-a-Lago comments and HHS's and FDA's guidance, what reforms are they going to entertain that avoid relitigating this prohibition discussion in the middle of 2020? And so you're absolutely right that these are kind of dramatic new big ideas that uh, are required in terms of implementation or consideration in a very short time frame. But that's the hand we've been dealt. And, and I think that we obviously have a renewed opportunity to get reform out of HHS and the FDA that we did not have prior to last Thursday, only because their hand was forced. The FDA and HHS now have to follow what the president has decided in terms of the guidance that he signed off on and his commitment to protect small businesses. And so that's um, a very long way of saying that the fight between now and May is complicated and important, and we have to press reform. And then after May, the fight hasn't ended, um, but the argument has to be made that unless the government is prepared to begin seizing so many products, largely sold by small businesses, which the president cares about, then they still have to engage in a reform-oriented conversation about PMTAs sooner rather than later. So this has got the makings of a great uh, grand political standoff. I think it's great news that Joe Biden has, Biden has come out with a crazy eliminate all vaping uh, platform because it makes that a national, it's not just Trump talking about vaping anymore now. Got, and with Bernie Sanders, the same thing. So if that's the case, this is a national conversation. We have to figure out a way in which some truth can enter into that. So all of the business and everything else is, is, is great. I mean, that, that's where obviously the, the, you know, it's the leverage, the leave it, it's the leverage. Sorry, excuse me. I've had like no sleep, right? So building this damn new studio. Um, so I think it's a great thing that this is a, uh, is going to be a national conversation. So how do we inject truth? One of the things with regard to reform of the um, of the PMTA 
is this issue with it being a net public benefit. As long as that is the the grant the end all be all, that's it. That's got to be proved. You got to prove that, right? Well, you're never going to prove that unless smoking cessation is allowed on the table. Yeah, and um, I, I think the FDA's approval of low nicotine cigarettes, um, as interesting uh, as that is, is probably helpful for the vapor industry because what the government has said um, as it relates to net public health benefit in a population level assessment is that bringing a new cigarette, a combustible product to market protects public health. Now, of course, that was about the level of nicotine in the products. Um, But the reality is we now have precedent under this FDA where a determination has been made that the approval of a new combustible cigarette that operates the same way a new Porter or Marlboro does, just with less appeal to consumers that actually use it, um, is okay. Uh, and so I, I have long advocated for eliminating the population level requirement in terms of some net public health benefit because I don't think the FDA is competent uh, or, or credible enough to make such a determination. But um, it, it is that the, the significant question faced the agency, which is, we don't have any precedent on the approval of flavored products beyond traditional tobacco and menthol um, because none of the products that have been approved recently um, in non-combustibles or, or smokeless tobacco has been flavored. And so how does the agency make a determination about the net public health benefit to a cherry or watermelon or blueberry or banana custard product when for the last year and a half they've demonized flavors as existing simply to appeal to and attract kids? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how you bridge two questions um, is very, very difficult. Um, I'm glad I'm not a manufacturer asked to make that case. But again, the reality is that that um, I think when it comes to teen experimentation with these products, if that's something the FDA is going to focus on in terms of their approval or rejection of applications, um, the government doesn't have a lot of data to blame most businesses in this space. I think they probably unfairly blame some businesses in this space because given the fact the single biggest factor that drove teens to experiment with e-cigarettes and vaping products in 2019 was curiosity, which probably as, as uh, my good friend at, at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Michelle Mitt, who you've had on before, has talked about um, uh, largely is a result of government ads and campaigns and stupid television press stories on this stuff. Um, it's not flavors, which less than a quarter of teens report flavors and the reason they use e-cigarettes. Um, so there is some both government precedent on the approval of PMTAs and government data we have about why teens vape that should guide the PMTA process. But it's obviously still unworkable. It's extremely expensive. you got to do a PMTA for every SKU and every product you have. Um, and I expect no matter what happens in terms of reform, we're going to see market consolidation. The FDA expects that as well. It was a part of the deeming rule. They expected that there'll be some consolidation. The big question, though, is is how or if the FDA is going to begin aggressive enforcement against those that don't submit PMTAs. Um, My push and my hope is that we can get at least some reform and certainty that gives many more businesses in March and April confidence to attempt to go through the process than there are today. But I'm fully cognizant of the fact. And and maybe the FDA is cognizant of the fact, maybe not, that most businesses aren't even going to try because there's just so much money required to even attempt to go through the process. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I mean, it's insane. <laughs> it's, it's, it's insane. 
But hopefully um, in 2020 could turn into a real political effort that we haven't seen uh, when it comes to vaping. Uh, To the likes of it, we've not seen before. Hopefully that is the case. You are totally right. If uh, stores start getting shut down, the media will immediately start blaming Trump for putting these small businesses out of out of work. And so the hypocrisy is just it's just sickening that uh, they would spend all these years, you know, demonizing vaping. And then the moment that that happens, they you know, turn turn the story the other way. And, and what I can share with folks is that one of the most um, impactful uh, videos and and set of stories that helped us avoid full-scale prohibition were a lot of the local stories coming out of states run by Democrats that had implemented statewide flavor bans. So we put together a number of compilations of uh, stories out of Massachusetts, among others, where stories were coming out that vape shops were having to close because of these statewide bans that were being implemented via governors. And what the White House told us is that that was very compelling um, and that that they wanted to continue to hear stories from businesses that might be impacted by prohibition. And so the point of me sharing that is that, number one, we want to avoid that nationwide. But number two, vapors have to be prepared to continue to engage politically, whether they're showing up to a Trump event to push PMTA reform or whether they're showing up to the Iowa caucus or New Hampshire or South Carolina or other places to protest um, uh, candidates who have expressed support for prohibition. I think that this needs to be the year of the vapor voter and that the end of the vapor voter story was not simply avoiding full scale prohibition at the end of 2019. The story of 2020 has to be the extent to which 13 plus million American vapors not only stood up for themselves because they refused uh, to to accept prohibition, but that they refused to accept anything short of complete victory um, in terms of certainty for the process and a commitment that beyond 2020, that the industry would be uh, respected and appreciated as um, harm reduction tools and smoking cessation tools for adult smokers. And so um, if that's my biggest message for, for viewers that, that stick with us through this whole uh, episode, it's that they have to be prepared to speak on behalf of their business interest and their personal interest every day between now and the election. Um, and if we are successful, both in terms of PMTA reform and ensuring that whoever is the president in 2020-21, they understand the importance of small business interest and vapor voter interests. Um, that it is a lasting coalition that can help us in state fights as well. Well, that's great. Well, that's awesome. That was a fantastic way to end it. Paul, is there anything else you wanted to add? Or do we, I mean, it's complicated, of course, for 2020, uh, but there's a fight to be had. Yeah, I mean, I think the last point I would make is that, um, you know, the, the political points in D.C. and the jobs numbers and the economic numbers have all been compelling. And we've tried to play as big a role as possible in making a compelling argument to the campaigns and the administration and different departments and agencies and members of Congress. But what I think really helped us avoid full-scale prohibition and what might help us achieve regulatory reform before May and then beyond then is the genuine passion of adults who use these products and the businesses that every single day help adults access these products because this is a life-saving industry. 
and the testimonials and the stories of vapors and the compelling story of entrepreneurship for an industry that did not exist 10 years ago that the Labor Department has rated as the most successful small business story in the retail sector over the last 10 years. You all are the most credible advocates for this fund. And I certainly hope to be a tool and a resource to the extent that we can uh, amplify everyone's message. But but I am hopeful that Vapors um, remain confident in a and an opportunity for reform in the system. And if not, people just need to show up and protest because that also resonates. Um, the press loves covering it. Um, and and um, I, I think the press increasingly understands the political component to this story as well. Well, 100%, I can speak on behalf of the entire vaping industry, and they want to thank you, Paul, for being such a dedicated professional uh, in chasing the truth and chasing down the politics in this matter. So thanks very much for all of that, and thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great. Don't go away here. Just one second. And that's it for this edition of RegWatch. Now, before you head off, please go to support.regulatorwatch.com and take a look around, dig in your wallet, find a few dollars, kick them over to us. You will be very happy you did, and so will we. And while you're online, make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And that's it for this first edition of RegWatch for 2020. I'm Brent Stafford. Thanks for watching.